0: This is a relay project. The discourse
1: starts right now with Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis.
0: Well, welcome to the discourse, where Cheryl and I bring our opposing views to give you the full landscape of Alberta politics so that you can come to your own conclusions. Now, it's a little bit of a slow week. Uh, it's constituency week. So I'm going to start off, Cheryl, because we're both on vacation <laughs> in different countries cheersing you. Uh, I've got some nice white wine. You've got a mimosa. Apparently, my family does not believe in having orange juice around the uh, the hotel. But uh, cheers to to the off week of politics. Yeah,
1: our own little constituency break, which only happens when you are not a staffer anymore. So certainly, cheers to that exactly Uh, despite it being a constituency break there's still lots going on in alberta politics some of it is a little bit inside baseball some of it is intentionally dropped at a time when people are paying less attention and i think that is probably fair to say about the massive report that came out this week detailing COVID 19 how the government responded and how it should respond in the future I'll give you the first shot. What do you think?
0: For those that don't know, uh, I can kind of give us a little bit of a background on on how we even got here. So uh, Premier Danielle Smith, when she ran, was running on making changes to the human rights, as Cheryl's pointed out. Uh, it kind of came about during uh, many people being frustrated during COVID-19, feeling that their, their rights were attacked. So during her leadership campaign, that was one of the, the forefront policies that she was campaigning on. Fast forward to her winning, getting in front of caucus, uh, talking about, you know, her her first legislative session, what that's going to look like. Um, and I think the will was that first off, you know, and Cheryl, you'll agree with this is if you're going to open up any legislation and make amendments, you kind of got to look at it holistically, uh, as opposed to just a one-off. And I think that that's where, um, Premier Danielle Smith coming into the office quickly learned that that is kind of how it's done when you're on the government side. So she decided to take a different approach, um, to, you know, the post-mortem we'll call it of COVID-19 and look at it holistically a little bit more and I think that there's you know about six or seven pieces of legislation that this report is is reviewing uh and so now the report after being commissioned out to Preston Manning who is uh, you know looking at similar things on how we can do better next time and and what is the best approach came back with only a short few 90 recommendations uh, for the government to consider. And so that was uh, announced, as you mentioned, on Wednesday uh, during a constituency week. But I'm sure you want to jump in on that point.
1: Yeah, so the government did this report led by former Reform Party leader Preston Manning. Like you said, 90 recommendations coming out of this. Most of this is fluffier stuff or political cover for what I think the top lines of what this panel is recommending is, which is, Uh, medical professionals should not have ultimate authority during a public health emergency and that the government will now consider in its decision-making alternative scientific narratives, which that term in itself just makes me laugh. Um, A very diplomatic way to say that ideology will come before evidence and before science um, when governments have to make decisions like they did during COVID-19. I mean, keeping in mind that Daniel Smith was Elected as leader of the UCP on a promise not to bring back mandates, not to bring back lockdowns, she now does have a responsibility to those who elected her to fulfill that mandate. Which you know I'm saying is the UCP, not the people of Alberta, um, to fulfill that mandate and bring forward a report like this. You know, doing this broader piece, like you've talked about, um, I think Albertans should be worried because what this report does is concentrate all of that power all of that decision-making in a public health emergency with a politician. And Daniel Smith is not a doctor, Daniel Smith is not a scientist, and yet she will have ultimate decision-making should we find ourselves in a position, hope we never will, like COVID-19 again.
0: So surprisingly, I figured that's where you were gonna take the conversation. <laughs> uh, you guys and like so like predictable. predictable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, to look at this, not just from a public health um, journey, there is a double edged sword always when power lies in the cabinet, as Preston Manning pointed out, and just for our listeners, there hasn't been much coverage on this, The, the government's kind of standing holding line is, you know, we just got the report, which is fair, they need to review it. Um, Preston Manning has come out saying that, you know, this is to look at it, how we should do this going forward. Public health, for sure, um, I think is important. But when you look at natural disasters, how we handle any type of quote unquote crises that we're facing, this is very much in line with it. So I appreciate, you know, the NDP coming out and the fear mongering of, of we should be worried this is public health. She's not a doctor. Well, she's also not a firefighter. Uh, She's not someone that can deal with floods. You were there during Fort McMurray fires. I was in the Premier's office during um, the Southern Alberta floods. Like the emergency management system is, I think, an appropriate place for it to move because that is where natural disasters, health crises, all of that will now fall. And it is a double-edged sword to give it to cabinet because one, President Manning came out and said, these are the people that are accountable to the electorate, which I agree with. They're also the people that in every situation are at the decision-making table. So I don't know how a public health um, crises would be any different than a natural disaster that we've we've seen.
1: And And I'm not advocating that politicians not be involved in the decisions that affect the electorate at large. I'm saying that in a public health emergency, I want the decisions that are made about the public's health and what keeps people safe and what's driving a pandemic to be made by people who are involved in the science, who have a background, who are experts in this field. And I want that to be how we develop public policy, not the other way around. So what this report is suggesting is that first we look at the values of society in the words of the report, first we look at the ideology, and then we will see how that lines up with the science, how that lines up with the evidence. And I think that's wrong in a public health emergency. I want our decisions as a society to be driven by data, to be driven by evidence, to be advised on by professionals. And then yes, let the politicians uh, bring in what's, what they believe is best for society based on all of that. But if we look at this another way, like, let's just say we're going to go ideology first, ask questions later for something like a bridge. We're going to build a bridge, a community wants a bridge. They also really like popsicle sticks. They have a vested interest in popsicle sticks. And so the the premier's office says, you know, what values first ideology first. We are going to let you build your bridge out of popsicle sticks. Engineers be damned. Does that work? Like, (laughs) this is what we're talking about when it comes to a public health emergency, obviously much more serious than a popsicle stick bridge, but we can't have the data come second. The data has to come first and it has to be trusted, proven data.
0: And, and I don't think that this report is saying any different. It has a, a specific setup for those individuals, those science experts. Look at the panel that put this together. It wasn't, you know, everyone in their kitchen sink, lot of scientists, lots of phys- like people in the healthcare space. Like it's not, it's not a, incredible list of people that both were contracted to do the work as well that sat on this this panel so um you know I I love the extreme example that you gave <laughs> here of popsicles like I was remembering building those as a child more than I was uh maybe taking you seriously with <laughs> that but you know I think it does come down to is this when we go forward we want to approach this like think of some of the stuff that we did in society um at the at the you know advice of of healthcare professionals at the advice of of the politicians we trusted like think back 20 years and we're like i had to show a passport to go to a restaurant like this is airborne. It's not airborne. It's it's like, it's, it's an unprecedented pandemic. So yes, of course, I don't think this report, and I did try to read 119 pages. I didn't get through it because we're, you know, on vacation, trying to enjoy a little bit, but reading um, the report by the pool, (laughs) you know, I was doing that too. Uh, but you know, like you're, you're trying to, trying to digest all of this. I, d- I didn't pull that out of this. I pulled out that there was some general themes that, you know, there does need to be some decision made. The buck stops with the politicians, but that doesn't mean that until that point, they're not consulting everyone under the sun, especially those in the healthcare practice, but we just like you do with fire, everyone.
1: No, but we shouldn't be consulting everyone under the sun. Like there is There are medical professionals and there was broad consensus on lots of the pieces of COVID and there isn't alternative science on COVID. There is like the science and science is finding consensus and going away and making up your own narrative because yes, COVID was so frustrating. No one wanted to be at home. No one wanted to be away from their loved ones. Having being locked down and having kids out of schools was terrible. But that doesn't mean that the science was wrong that doesn't mean that the doctors were wrong and to create our own narrative and then go out in the world and try to find biased sources to confirm it that is not serving the public good and but that this, is what this, this report
0: is allowing but when i look at what it is it's like less assessed and i think we can both agree the goal is to if shit did this ever happen again and i think we all don't ever want to experience that again if this happens again what are the lessons learned some of them were. and I I shouldn't have said everyone under the sun I meant everyone like not limiting who you're getting uh, the advice from in the the healthcare sector right i think that we there should have been some more consultation of the impacts it had across a broader scheme um of of again like the mental health piece that i think was maybe missed at times i think that there's questions on just general um consensus like you said and i i I totally am behind like the science backing data driven for sure i don't think this means in a determinant way that the politicians aren't gonna do that. It just means that they want a cohesive like information to make the best decision, just like you would get all the right people.
1: No, you don't need a $2 million report from Preston Manning to tell you to consult a broad range of experts on public policy. What this report does is say, okay, you can talk to experts about public policy and you can talk to non-experts about alternative narratives. That is opening the door to have someone who is not an expert weighted their their advice weighted the same as someone who is clearly an expert in their field and if it wasn't we didn't need it like this is not a a premier relying on a an expert in their field a premier relying on data should be something and has been for decades something that's already happening we didn't need a report for that that existed
0: but but I, I would argue that there's a lot of people that were very frustrated, didn't feel that, you know, government or the public health was standing up for their best interests. You do it in campaigns, you do it in after natural disasters, like the postmortem of how we can we get best practices is standard practice. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we've had it from other things. So why wouldn't we do it with COVID? And do I think that 90 recommendations might be very robust and large and that none, there's not a reality. What a diplomatic all way be? to yeah. say that so robust (laughs) this report it's certainly not yeah it's
1: certainly not political cover for something very 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 political right
0: absolutely not Cheryl in no way I believe (laughs) but no it's I I don't think it is I think that is a piece of it like I'm not going to sit here and bullshit you I think where this came from was the fact that Daniel Smith did campaign on The human rights issue. This was now taking it like there was frustration of COVID. There's accountability as elected office. There's lack of trust, regardless of what political party or stripe because of COVID in our government system. So you know what? then put it to a report, get people to get a cross section of experts to be able to look and provide best practices. We do it with every other um, emergency or disaster or anything like that. I'm glad that they did it. Do I think that this is like the, the the best report I've ever seen? Or do I think that a 90 recommendations can come forward? Absolutely not. But I can tell you my time in government when we got, you know, the post- um, the post report on on the floods and what flood mitigation looked like and maps and the ch- need to change those. All of those types of things are exactly what this report also know, brings. But, there's value okay. add for a report. I agree. Value I agree.
1: Report. And we did them with the Fort McMurray wildfires, but what we didn't do with the Fort McMurray wildfires is say, next time there's a fire, we're not only going to rely on the advice of firefighters, we're going to go find alternative narratives about fires and firefighting. And that's what this report does. And that would be the fair comparison if you want to talk about firefighters.
0: I mean, those are like, that's one piece. One of them is around students and that we should really at only limit school access if needed, right? That like there was a huge miss by how much we've closed schools and things like that. So yes, I I agree that is one piece that came out is like, we need to do this differently. I mean, none of us knew what we we, we don't know what we don't know. And COVID was a lot of, we don't know. So, you know, when we're coming through all of this, I think that there are pieces, like I said, that is one piece of, of the report. I don't really, it's not my, my hill to die on, on that one. Um, but I think that the biggest piece I took was like, yes, we do need to do everything in our power to keep children in the classroom. I can tell you the mental impacts and I, I, you know, you've seen it through people, you know, I've seen it. It's like the mental health impacts that it had on children. They're learning all of these things. And for, for what? Right. And so I'm in a place where you know, the report is is part of it. Putting it all under the emergency management system makes sense to me. And you know, we'll see what the government does with this robust report uh, in in actual actions. But it did, I, I'm not going to lie on where it stemmed from on the human rights piece, but I think Danielle Smith actually corrected her course by going after one item, and looking at this broader and looking at it broader from what's going to impact uh, and be the best in the best interest of all Albertans? Well, it's either that or it's
1: my frame where she's concentrating political power and allowing the opportunity for alternative narratives, which is the diplomatic way to say non scientific advice. And the rest is political cover. So I guess we'll see. Here's a question Do you think lobbyist is a bad word? our next sponsor pocket lobbyist wants you to start thinking about political risk as business risk and rid yourself of the idea that lobbying is a bad word pocket lobbyist is a first of its kind subscription-based platform to help organizations anticipate interpret and mitigate political risk in alberta It's a woman-founded, self-funded startup created by a professional lobbyist and it's a platform that has all the tools you need to effectively lobby the government in Alberta. From biographies and key contacts to briefing notes to templates, office hours and an exclusive members-only newsletter every week, it's a tool that is a no-brainer for lobbyists, executives, associations, nonprofits and anyone who wants quality public policy materials at a really accessible price point. The monthly subscription is $149 and gives individuals unlimited access to dozens of resources available on the platform. And our listeners can get two months free if you sign up before December 31st and use the code DXP monthly. Okay. So last week, like we said, lots of stuff happened. Some things that, you know, just the business of government, some things that the government hopes that you didn't notice because it was a long weekend. It's now constituency week. Question period will not resume until next week. Um, but a few things did happen, including the announcement that the chief electoral officer and the ethics commissioner will be replaced. And I have to say that over the last couple of weeks, there seems to be this running theme, like do not get on the wrong side of Daniel Smith. It's like the last two weeks are Daniel Smith's revenge tour. HS dismantled. Ethics commissioner, the ethics commissioner who dropped a report during the election, in fact on debate day, uh, saying that Daniel Smith had broke the law and interfering in the justice system on behalf of someone who played a role in the Coots COVID-19 blockade, Marguerite Tressler, she's out. So is this warranted, Erica, or is this, in fact, Daniel Smith's revenge tour?
0: You and I talked about when Marguerite um, came in, it was actually under Dave Hancock. So uh, the PCs during an interim leader, because this does come up every four years, um, I believe you guys re- renewed it, Jason Kenny renewed it, um, and now it is coming up to to that term. And you know what? I mean, I'm looking historically at how long someone is in that role, and it's um, just like how I feel about the liberal government, they've kind of, uh, come to come to their end time federally, to be clear. Uh, but you know, it's, it's been some time that she's been in this office. That's, you know, three, int- like, well, Jason Kennedy is interim, another interim leader. Like it's to a point now that I'm sure she has, you know, I believe she's done her service for Albertans and, uh, can, can call it a day. I don't think that it's necessarily this quote unquote revenge tour. her. Um, because I mean, she she's done her job. She's done what she's supposed to do. I don't think she's approached it any different from under Rachel Notley's administration to to Danielle Smith's. Um, and you know, I understand that that report dropped in incon- like on a shitty day, honestly, for going into <laughs> debate. But I don't think that she did that maliciously. I don't think that. I think it was just when it happened and it had to get out by a certain date. And you know what? I mean, from our side, strategically, it wasn't the worst thing. Um, It came in through the debate day and then it actually didn't get as much coverage as maybe you guys were hoping for.
1: (laughs) But man, did it suck for you to have to defend it on CBC.
0: That was one of my favorite, uh, (laughs) favorite interviews I got to do during the election. Um, I mean, it wasn't our week to the election. This was actually as we were on the upward trajectory. But yes, that is not an easy question to answer uh, in that moment of time. Yeah. And,
1: And like, absolutely both of these officers have been in their roles for some time now. This could be absolutely routine and perhaps warranted that their roles be looked at to see if they're the best suited for that role. Although I do think it raises suspicion to say that not only has the government decided that they will replace Marguerite Tressler, they've also decided that in the same breath, it will not be allowed for ethics commissioners to drop reports during an election period investigations will not be reported on during an election period. And so it does raise an eyebrow. It does raise suspicion that these two things are hand in hand, you know, a a coded message, if you will, um, that the government didn't like this. And they thought that it was unfair. And they thought that maybe the uh, public should have waited until after election day to hear whether Daniel Smith broke the law.
0: Okay, so flip that you're in a intense election and there is stuff like it should have come out before. To be honest, it should have come out before, before the RIP period. Um, I think it did need to be released. I think those were fines that did uh, maybe impact voters' views of either Daniel Smith or the UCP or anything like that. Like, I'm all for the transparency. But again, I mean, had it come out before, you guys were going to run on that every single day anyway. So if it was something that was like that and and you're sitting there uh, as Rachel Notley's camp, you know, like, is it not fair to say, let's just get stuff out as opposed to the day of a debate? Like to me, that's also not like, I'm I, I'm not saying anything, anyone doing anything. And I did say before, I don't think it was done maliciously, but the convenience was a little bit uh, ridiculous. Um, I don't think that she's on either side in any way. So I want to be clear on that, but you know, There'd be advantage to letting Albertans choose, not through quote unquote scandal or any other, um, you know, big wedge that comes in, but to actually pick the best leader. And I think that putting some public reports during a rip period can actually sway the voter unintentionally.
1: Unintentionally, but certainly if one of the contestants to be leader of a province has in fact broken the law and the public doesn't know that yet, that might be a piece of information they want before they cast their ballot. Like, should they hold on to it? Should the should the then release commissioner it just before. hold?
0: Do, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm I would not, have totally not agree, supported
1: yeah. re- releasing it before.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's the thing, is it's like then it became political um, or appeared to be political or strategic, and I mm-hmm. don't think that was the intention, but unfortunately, that's how how it plays out. So I do think that information is is fair. There was a lot in that report and, and where exactly the, the NDP criticized the premier, which she was actually not. Uh, she was completely in the right, I think how she she handled it on acknowledging what she was going to change, et cetera. fair. But I also think that you guys probably would have got some more oxygen had it been out before than uh, on debate day, right? So I think we can no. both agree that it should' so so to close that, do you think that it was it's fair for the government as opposed to what you said before on this is, you know, it's intentional there do you think it sounds like you agree that it's actually a fair thing to keep it outside the writ period? Well,
1: I think first and foremost, the job of the ethics commissioner is to investigate ethics breaches and report on them to the public in the most timely manner possible. I mean, releasing it on the day of the debate debates are tough debates suck like that is you know a lot of anxiety for any leader to have that come out the same day it does look suspicious and i think it takes a little bit away from the validity of the report whether it was intentional or whether it was absolutely coincidental but i don't think that the ethics commissioner should be thinking about politics like i don't think i think the ethics commissioner should be thinking there's a a potential ethics breach i'm looking into it i am getting that information to the public as fast as i possibly can Um, And so if that is in a RIP period, they should have that information. If it's not ready before the RIP period, like if it's ready, it should go out. If it happens to be in a RIP period, it should go in a RIP period. People deserve that information.
0: But wouldn't you as the ethics commissioner, want to have that opportunity to then push for everyone to participate in the investigation to get it done before the rip period. Like I, as the yeah. if I was ever the ethics commissioner, I, so I wouldn't want, yeah. So I think that there could be effort to then fast track it, um, or not fast track it without due diligence, obviously, but get it out um, so that, again, it's not impacting the election. So I think putting that as a rule in is is fair. Uh, how we got to this uh, is is something totally different than just changing a rule when you're changing um, out someone uh, or someone's role or they're coming to the end of their term for uh, of service. But I do think it's fair to say that, like, it's in the best interest for Albertans to decide who the pro- person that should run their province, should they be in an investigation, should be outside of a writ period. Um, because, again, it's a, it's like you said, it becomes political on something that shouldn't be political.
1: And what about the chief electoral officer? Mm -hmm. I mean, the chief electoral officer has been in this role for 13 years, uh, now being reviewed. You know, maybe that's business as usual. Um, I do think it's a little suspicious though, that Take Back Alberta, the far right sect of the UCP um, and the biggest attendees of the UCP AGM uh, have not been pushing to get rid of e-voting. And the only way to do that is to have a chief electoral officer who's interested in doing that. So again, this could be business as usual, but it seems a little suspicious. Yeah.
0: So I did not know this actually, how the rules of the uh, chief electoral officer works. And so yes, uh, Glenn has been in this role for, like you said, 10, 13 years, um, looking at everyone else, pretty standard. Uh, I I think it's business as usual, but I I can address your point. Um, I know that the I believe both leaders watched, you know, had the opportunity to go witness. I had a very privileged role during the campaign to go watch the e-voting. Um, I've also heard the premier say that like there was confidence in that. So I don't think that that's where this is headed. I don't believe that your my robust word is your suspicious word <laughs> for the day, <laughs> but I don't believe that that's the intent. I honestly truly believe one, if, if you're going to, Look at reappointments. Why not do two like roles at the same time for efficiency perspective? Both of them have served a a very long tenure. Um, I'm sure would love some some retirement time or whatever is in their future. They've you know done what they need to do for Albertans. I I don't believe the e voting um, really did pay play uh, a role into it because I do know that you know both parties did their due diligence and I'm sure all the party leader or lawyers and all of that looked into it just to make sure that it was the best. Uh, it didn't seem to help us on efficiency on election night where you and I, I think had to do more media hits than we would ever want um, because there was, you know, some challenges in getting voting. So I do hope that they look at how to make this more efficient, especially if we're going to use um, electronic devices versus the old school counting of ballots. But um, I'm sure that's for, for another time for us to chat about.
1: And you know what? The majority of the public, one, doesn't know this is happening. Two, probably doesn't know what the chief electoral officer is. And three, is on their own constituency breaks this week or whatever else they're doing um, and really isn't paying attention until this becomes an issue.
0: Um, Unfortunately, I don't have a cool personal story about California closets like you do, Cheryl, Um, but I've been learning lots and lots about them. And uh, you know they are your custom closets and storage system that can be for every room of your house. They're not just the closets, 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 but they are uh, for every space in your home. So you can explore custom details and pricing. California Closet experts design, their design consultants will collaborate with you to create a personalized solution best based on your needs, style and budget. So I love this, that it's like you can still live within your means while building your dream home. To learn more, go to californiaclosets.ca. The last topic that we want to talk about today is obviously um, on the electricity, the the clean electricity regulations uh, brought in by the federal government. Uh, it's something that you and I actually talked about electricity probably more than we thought when we were going head to head during the election. And so this is something that the federal government's bringing forward. The government is saying that it's unrealistic to have carbon neutrality by 2035. Um, It's not within the federal government's jurisdiction. And so we're seeing a lot of the uh, stand up for Alberta narrative coming out of the government as a result of this policy. It also comes off of, you know, the Supreme Court's decision on C-69. This is bread and butter of my level conservative life, uh, on how, how you say what is, what is ours and what is not. I will say, I think where our two parties agree is that we all want to work towards carbon emissions and, um, carbon neutrality. The difference is the federal government. And I'm happy, I'd be happy if your answer was different that the NDP have now readjusted their, uh, position of 2035 to reach those goals given that it's impossible, but uh, versus 2050, but that's where uh, Premier Smith and the UCP government is working towards is what I believe a realistic um, target to hit that, given that we are very heavily in natural gas, we do not have hydro, um, like some of the other provinces. And I think that this is one of those uh, another demonstration of our federal government not really understanding uh, Alberta, Western Canada, or just anywhere outside of Quebec and maybe Ontario.
1: We are in alignment on getting to carbon neutrality by 2050. I've talked with our electricity producers and uh, talked to Pathways Group. Uh, they, they, they both believe that, that those uh, targets of 2050 are achievable. That's what we've got to work towards, It's the federal government who keeps on interfering, intervening, and setting unrealistic, um, unachievable, and now patently unconstitutional provisions that we've been fighting against. And so I hope that they read this, uh, this judgment in the spirit in which I believe the Supreme Court intended it and come to the table and work with us so that we can align on 2050 targets. Ultimately, ultimately you're right. There is a shared goal. Alberta needs to find a path to net zero. We are disagreeing on what that path looks like in terms of like what the federal government wants and what Alberta is saying. Um, but I think it's really tough to find what that path looks like and find a path forward when your approach is to stamp your feet. Like Alberta has faced tough challenges over and over and over again, and people have rolled up their sleeve and they've come to the table and they have charted a path forward in a very Alberta way, in a way that works for our province. And that was true of, you know, the beginnings of uh, exploring for oil. That was true of coming off of coal. And that has been true of building the Trans Mountain pipeline. But Daniel Smith's approach to saying, uh, we don't like what you're doing, we think you're doing it wrong and we're not gonna work with you. That's not how we've done things for decades and that's not how it's worked for decades. And so I think that I, like the frustration is shared across Alberta that, you know maybe our specific positions and in our industries have not been uh, thoughtfully considered as the federal government has brought in um, policies, but how do we work together on that? Do we do it just by standing up and saying we hate Ottawa, Ottawa sucks, and Ottawa doesn't know anything about us?
0: Like to me, I don't think that invites Ottawa to the table with us to find a solution. Where are you gonna get the billions of dollars to do it? Where are you going to and like let's be honest? Like there's companies that will have to take the big hit, but it's always gonna come back to the ratepayer. Um, like you know, you guys had intentions with a cap. It does come back to the rate payer. Uh, I worked for a utilities company. I understand like how electricity, you know, will, will always be something where our grid is unique. So I think the bigger thing for Alberta is, well, this isn't the same solution as Quebec and Ontario. And so why can't we look at it differently? And what is realistic? ASO, um, so like our our body outside that like is looking at our electricity system, and they're the operators. They're saying this isn't isn't realistic for twenty thirty five because we can't build the infrastructure fast enough. And and if we try to do this too fast, like a quick and dirty solution, which I believe is how the twenty thirty five will go, we're gonna have rolling. Blockouts, we're going to have to pay an absorbent amount of money. And when we're all talking about inflation right now, how can you actually sit there and say that screaming and shouting with Ottawa, which I don't think is the approach, um, but that also bending over and letting Ottawa say 2035 is realistic when you know it isn't? Like I think that there's there's I think that there's probably more work that the NDP could do to try and look at it realistically. Okay, but what you just explained
1: was the tone was completely different than what the ucp has been offering like what you just offered was a step-by-step here's what we think is wrong with the problem here's where we'd like to explore solutions what we have seen from the ucp is incredibly incredibly hot rhetoric where you had senior ministers and the premier come out and say paint a picture of mothers and babies freezing in the night while somebody tries to get minister gibault on his cell phone like that is that is Super hot rhetoric. It's incredibly unrealistic. And I don't know why the federal government would want to come to the table when that's what you're presenting as your policy position. Like, there I, are like,
0: ministers, I will say, like, and the premier said this, Minister Schultz has said this, there are federal ministers that are working with us um, or with the, with Alberta. And the problem is, is that Guibo is not one of them and his ideological beliefs are, are coming through. So I think it's, it's unfair to say that he's not coming at it as very combative either. Um, and, and I'll say like, I think that, that, the UCP is taking a, a strong aggressive tone on this. But I also feel like the individual that they're working with on this file isn't trying to come to the table and have discourse about like we do, um, but have discourse and be constructive. Like it's like he can take a punch and he's taken them on us. He won't even acknowledge C69. And it was like, you know, deemed um unconstitutional. Like, like this is an individual that I think is not also helping the Alberta um position or trying to to be constructive
1: yeah and it's i mean it's just alberta punches the federal government punches back and then alberta's in a position to go at it again and i mean watching all of this happen i really it really has me wondering uh what kind of a political gamble it has been for danielle smith to sink all of her political capital into this battle with ottawa to make it her political brand to battle Ottawa. I mean, every politician, every successful politician needs a great narrative about who is the problem, who is the threat to society. And of course, you know, how to position themselves to solve that problem. And Daniel Smith has done a great job in Alberta of leveraging discontent with the federal government, making them the enemy and positioning herself as the hero. But what happens to that political narrative for her if there's a change in power in Ottawa?
0: There's probably some constructive ways to, to work together and have more dialogue. Like, I think that you're discrediting how many Albertans love Canada, but they feel like we don't get a fair deal. And I don't think that that's ideological. I think that that is actually people that are sitting there and no, they're like, "That's not what I'm Healthcare saying." Healthcare transfers, okay? Then because we're so polite to each other, like, yeah. go ahead, like, I, I just no, don't I, think ch- I, yeah.
1: I think that the position, like the underlying frustration here is absolutely warranted. And it has been for a long time where Alberta has felt like it hasn't been heard. Well, Alberta has felt like it hasn't got its, you know, I hate saying fair deal, but fair deal. Um, It's it's pushed for more, but I'm, what I'm criticizing is the approach to getting more. Like I worked in a government where Alberta was pushing for a pipeline to tidewater and Jurisdictions across the country, including the federal government, opposed that pipeline, but in order to see the project move forward, Rachel Notley did not stamp her feet and say Ottawa sucks and I hate Justin Trudeau she went across the country she sat down with decision makers she sat down with opinion leaders and she made our case and she talked about the climate leadership plan and she talked about why this was in the national interest and she talked about how provinces and organizations would benefit if the pro if the project went ahead and instead of stamping her feet she made a real case and she changed hearts and minds and the federal government bought the pipeline that's how you constructively work together. And how's that pipeline we, going? <laughs> it's under construction. It's, it's scheduled to be in service.
0: It's, it's not as far and it's not as it's good. The first... and it's the federal government had to buy it and use billions of dollars instead of letting companies do the work.
1: Okay. Point to a conservative <laughs> government. That's got a pipeline to Tidewater built.
0: Oh my gosh. I knew you were <laughs> going to bring that up. Be like, we've got it. <laughs> what you didn't get into Tidewater. You kind of like, st- like helped it. <laughs>
1: What I'm saying is, if Rachel Notley had stood in the corner and stamped her feet and said more o- more Alberta, less Ottawa, I don't think that would have happened. I'm advocating for constructive dialogue on the same topic that I feel like Daniel Smith is stamping her feet over.
0: And and I don't, I, I'm not discouraging constructive dialogue. I think it's been that we have a conservative government and a federal liberal party that's not fans of of Alberta in any way. So, I mean, I'm looking at this as the frustration. I think we agree is both there. The frustration and my favorite term, fair deal, uh, has been felt regardless of political party in power. Um, Where I think where we differ is that there's a lot of people that are frustrated and we're at a point of like, this isn't getting anywhere because we're getting we're hitting a wall with the federal government. And so sometimes, yeah, you need to shout a little bit louder because it's it's like, you know, you're not getting your your point across. They don't even want to sit at a table because they they truly do not believe like Ebo does not believe that like he has no time for Alberta. Um, so I do think that there is is always. It's always best to have constructive dialogue, but is that actually a realistic thing? I'd also prefer a leader that's going to relentlessly stand up for what Albertans want, while wanting to be a strong member of Confederation. And again, like I think we have got a little bit off of the the electricity side, but like I can't I can't fathom how Rachel like Rachel Notley doesn't push didn't push back more, and and is saying that twenty thirty five is realistic, and so bringing it back to like the topic we were talking about is I want to, I want a leader that's going to stand there and be like, this is actually not possible. And this is not your jurisdiction. This is not how the electricity grid in Alberta works. This is who is going to be punished. And it is people that, you know, the affordability issue, the, the fact that we have minus 25 minus 30 degree weather, um, that is, I think the narrative that they're trying to drive. Are they, are they being a little bit louder than maybe you want them to be? Sure. But I also don't hear anything from Rachel Notley on, on this being important or that this is not realistic at 2035. Like, yeah, it sounds freaking awesome to be able to be there 15 years faster, but at what cost? And again, like This is one thing that I have, like I said, I respect Rachel Notley for what she does, but like, she doesn't come with solutions. She's just like, yeah, okay, yeah, it's 2035, but I have no backing of what this is actually going to mean to Albertans, and besides throwing money at a problem and going back into a deficit, I don't understand how she's going to get you to 2035 without putting it on the backs of Albertans.
1: Well, I'm all for, like, as you said, you know, you're looking for a premier who stands up for Alberta first. I think you've seen that from... From both Rachel Notley and Daniel Smith in in specific situations, what I don't want as an Albertan is someone who starts this fight uh, for political gain at the risk of progress. Like, I don't want to sacrifice progress on the issues that Albertans care about for a headline on the front page of the paper. And I don't feel like the UCP has found that balance. I don't I think no matter what, it's can we get a headline on the paper today about how Daniel Smith, you know, swung at the federal government again? And I do think that comes at the expense of progress on issues that Albertans really care about. And that is just as detrimental as not offering a solution in the first place.
0: And I don't want to dismiss what you just said, because I do think that that is not the intention to get the headline. But unfortunately, sometimes that is the thing that's coming out of it. So yes... on on the progress. Let's have constructive dialogue when constructive dialogue is, is possible. But again, like this is an issue of what we're talking about is 15 year difference to get to the same goal. I am very much like pick the most realistic course, pick the one that's not going to impact Albertans, especially during a time where, um, they can't afford to, to address something like this. Yes, Again, it's it's we're all working towards the same goal. I just feel like this government and we can argue all day about their tactics in getting that message out. But again, like I think that there's an important opportunity for the opposition to look at what the made in Alberta solution is. And it actually might very well be, well, let's stick with a 2050, because again. It's going to be a benefit for everyone long term on the carbon emission standpoint, but it's also going to be realistic without, you know, overspending to try and race to a finish line that might not even exist.
1: But, and just before we wrap up today, because I think we've sort of, you know, strung this one out a little bit is to say, I don't think this is really a battle between the NDP's position on how soon we get to net zero and the UCP's, the The NDP is is sitting in opposition. This is clearly a battle between Daniel Smith and the federal government. And I think that's what it comes down to because both of those bodies have the power to implement laws. You know, uh, the, the Supreme Court of Canada has showed us just who can implement laws where. Um, but like Rachel Notley can continue to advocate, but where we're going to see progress is where the federal government and the Alberta government can work together. And I would really hate to see Alberta miss those opportunities and miss out on progress because the UCP is unwilling to, uh, to back down from their position to, to, to help that go ahead.
0: And I hear you. And that's always the frustration of opposition parties and their ability to, you know, throw grenades and shit on ideas and not necessarily have like their position or what they would do. And that's the difference between, you know, uh, uh, during a writ period and when you're trying to become leader and being an opposition leader. So I understand what you're saying about um, the federal and provincial. It's really tough. Um, when it doesn't feel like if you and I came to this table and all you wanted to do was yell your key messages and drive your narrative, and I wasn't willing to listen to you, how this podcast wouldn't work. So I think that that's what we're facing with the federal government right now is that there's probably compromise on both sides to try and have a better relationship. But I think that Alberta's been at this for a long time, and I can say, like, I personally sit there and I'm like, why can't Gibo just like try and put himself, have a little empathy, try and put himself in the Alberta shoes because we are working towards the same goal and we don't have the same year stamp, but that doesn't mean that we can't collaborate. So I'll totally say there's probably room for compromise on both sides, but I do think that the federal government is not helping um, to resolve this in any way. So Let's work for progress. Hopefully they all listen to this and decide that they want to have a kumbaya moment and uh, we can all work in the best interest uh, for Alberta and Canada.
1: So can I just summarize that for you? So you'd really like to collaborate. You'd really like to see Alberta and the federal government collaborate, but the federal government sucks and they're not listening and they're probably not going to work with us.
0: Is that right? Well, I don't feel that that's what I said, because <laughs> <laughs> I have enough to say what you just said about Rachel Notley. But no, I, I in, in a realist or like in an idealistic world, everyone comes together and is is holding hands and coming to a consensus. That is not what we have right now with our federal partners as a relationship. I do not think that they are trying super hard because, I mean, you've heard them. They don't even, they've said, like, if you want to have the federal government listen to you, elect more liberals in, in the prairies. Like you're saying stuff like that from ministers that we don't even really interact with on a regular basis. And that's the narrative that they have. I think that's super, um, that's super, you know, horrible to hear. I don't know how you can say it any other way. It's like, it, it makes you feel like they don't even care. And I think that's where a lot of Albertans are. So you can have your synopsis of whatever you think I, I said there. But ultimately, if everyone could be play fair and be happy and work together, great. I don't think that that's where we are um, with the federal government.
1: Well, in the name of uh, kind and understanding and kumbaya discourse, That's another episode of our show for this week. We have really enjoyed hearing all of your feedback and you've sent us messages on uh, Instagram and on social media, on LinkedIn and on X, formerly known as Twitter. And we would love to hear more from you. We want to dissect the topics that you want to talk about um, and we welcome your constructive criticism, your kudos and your topic ideas at any of our social media platforms.
0: Awesome. We'll see you all next week for the next episode of The Discourse.
1: The Discourse is hosted by Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Follow on Instagram at The Discourse Pod. Subscribe to The Discourse on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts.